Life Audio. Welcome to another episode of Truth Tribe with Doug Grothuis, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most and have some fun along the way sometimes. Anyway, this episode will be with my friend Aaron Champ, who's a pastor in Lafayette, Lafayette, Louisiana, and we did about a 45-minute exchange on my new book, Fire in the Streets, which is mostly about critical race theory, race, economics, politics, the Christian worldview, and so on. So this version will be a exchange between Pastor Champ and myself, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hey, guys, and welcome to this special recording episode of Filter Podcast and Doug's forthcoming podcast, Truth Tribe. On Filter, we recognize the world is a confusing place to live in, and so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. In 2020, we saw chaos, riots, and violence in American streets. The fire in the streets was paired with the message that Western culture is fundamentally divided into oppressed and oppressor. Ever since, we have been hearing leaders in government, media, medicine, higher education, and even some in the church, tell us how we ought to right these wrongs through radical programs of anti-racism, gender theory, and equity. In Dr. Grothuis' latest book, Fire in the Streets, he gives his response to these ideologies. What can we do amidst all the controversies over race and gender in society today? Do we have anything constructive to offer the world? As Jesus followers, we do, and this book shows us the way. Douglas Grothuis has his PhD and his professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, where he has served since 1993. He is the author or co-author of over 14 books, including the best-selling Unmasking the New Age, the much-used apologetics textbook Christian Apologetics, and his introduction to philosophy called Philosophy in Seven Sentences. He also has a memoir titled Walking Through Twilight and a children's book co-authored with Crystal Bowman named I Love You to the Stars. Before we start the interview today, I just want to thank our sponsors who have made this episode possible. First of all, I'd like to thank Christian Lewis, attorney of law. Attorney Christian Lewis has practiced in Lafayette for over 25 years in the areas of audio, industrial, and workplace injuries. If you want to find out more about Christian Lewis, you can visit his website, christianlewislaw.com. See his Facebook page, Christian Lewis, attorney at law. You can also click the link to his website in the show notes for this episode. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Defend Conference. Are you ready 
If someone asks you to explain your faith, are you ready? Well, you can be. Defend, which is one of the country's best apologetics conferences, is coming on January 2nd through 6th, 2023, to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and Level College in New Orleans. At Defend, you get to experience five full days of apologetics teaching from world-class apologists, such as Gary Habermas, Frank Turek, Paul Copan, Douglas Grotheis, and roughly 50 other speakers. When you register for Defend, you not only get to attend and experience as many sessions as you can possibly go to, but you also get recordings to the other sessions that you didn't get to go to. In total, you'll get access to recordings of about 150 hours worth of content. In addition to their registration, you will also get, they also offer meal and lodging packages so that you can get your registration to the conference, meals, and a place to stay all wrapped up in one together. You get to enjoy coffee and conversations with guest speakers every day. It is one of my favorite conferences to go to. I've been to it many times. I'm looking forward to going to it again. If you want to learn more about Defend, you can go to defendthefaith.net or click the link in the show notes to learn about it and register. Well, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Grootheis. Doug, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here again. Glad to have you. I've uh, read your book, Fire in the Streets, and I think it has all of the hallmark characteristics that have come to mark your writing. There's intellectual clarity, there's biblical conviction, wise critique, and so I'm thankful for that. But this one is, in addition to all those things, very timely. You write this book in the beginning, you say, as a self-identified conservative. What is the fundamental difference between a conservative worldview and a progressive worldview? And so how does being a self-identified conservative shape the way that you approach this book? Right. Well, I certainly would confess being a follower of Christ first. That's the most fundamental and pivotal matter. But actually, I am politically and socially conservative because I am a Christian. And I think the way you can divide it up is between two visions. And I get this from Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions, which is a brilliant book. There is the constrained vision of humanity and society and the unconstrained vision of humanity and society. And the constrained vision is where you realize that human beings are limited and fallen. We have a bent towards selfishness and even cruelty, and that's explained in the Christian worldview through original sin, fall, and the fall is carried down through the generations through what's called original sin. We're born into the world, flawed and damaged and so on. And so someone that has this constrained vision does not expect society to attain perfection And it does not have any kind of a program for utopianism. So the issue is we need to limit government. We need to limit power because people will tend to abuse power. Now, the other side is the unconstrained vision, which says that any flaws we experience in society is because of society. So if we have some kind of a system that allows people to bring out all their natural goodness, then we could eliminate poverty, eliminate Mm. racism, eliminate all these social ills. We just need the right program, which no one has yet figured out, but give it time. It's coming. We know it's coming. And Mm. the conservative vision is much more realistic, and it respects the past. You think of the American system, it is very respectful of forms of government with the Greeks and the Romans and the Hebrew Republic, and it's based on the constrained vision. So someone with that view 
doesn't believe that rioting in the streets and burning things down is going to solve any problems. It will not try to argue against the Constitution or say the Declaration was a sham because slavery had not yet been abolished in the United States. So that is the perspective that I bring. I've been very influenced by people like Thomas Sowell, Russell Kirk. Also, I'd say going way back probably to the first conservative, in a sense, Edmund Burke, or the one that really defined it against the French Revolution. Yeah, I was thinking of Oz Guinness, and he talks about the, the choice between America today is, are we going to trace our roots back to 1776 or to 1789? In other right. words, the American Revolution or French. Right. Because at the core of each one of these revolutions was two different views of human mm-hmm. nature. The American Revolution, which at the core saw mankind as fallen, which we see reflected in the way that our government was established mm-hmm. and set up. And the French Revolution, inspired by Rousseau, and an idea that if we could just create the perfect society, well, then man who is inherently good, right. would the best would come out of that. Right. And look at what happened with the French Revolution. <laughs> Do they ever learn? So we're not going to try. We shouldn't want to try the French Revolution all over again, or the Russian Revolution all over again, or the Maoist Revolution all over again. And sadly, what's behind so much of the real, literal fire in the streets is an ideological fire of Marxism or neo-Marxism. And that ends up being the unconstrained vision, Mm. that our social problems are because of unjust power structures. And if we can change those structures, if we can dismantle and deconstruct the civil government and the police and all the rest of it, then the natural goodness of people will somehow emerge from that. And that's simply based on a false anthropology a false view of human nature. So as a Christian, I understand that human beings are unique among the living. We're made in God's image and likeness. We have tremendous potential to create goodness and beauty and truth, or to recognize truth, rather. But we are constrained. We are limited, first of all, by being creatures, and secondly, because we are fallen. So the founders were very cognizant of a doctrine of human nature that did not either underestimate or overestimate the powers of humanity. And in that, their views were deeply informed by biblical revelation. Whether or not they were individually Christians, their views are very consonant with the biblical account. Now, of course, at the founding, slavery had not been addressed adequately. Jefferson was conflicted about slavery, as were some of the other founders. But my basic view is that The American system is not intrinsically evil. It doesn't have to be and should not be overturned. It has within it the principles that we can activate and live within in order to deal with some of our problems. And notice I didn't say solve our problems because conservatives typically don't talk about solving problems. They talk about ameliorating problems. Because often when you try to solve a problem, you can make things worse. For example, think of what was called the war on poverty in the 1960s in the United States. The idea was we are going to eliminate poverty through social programs and massive state redistribution of wealth and so on. And there are unintended consequences to these gigantic reform efforts that are not really taking into account the realities of human nature and history. I know Tom Sowell's written a good bit about that. Another person that you referenced quite a bit in the book that I've read and really learn a lot from would be Shelby Steele. And he talked about and really communicated well the how misguided many of those programs were and oh, the yeah. actually negative effects. 
Shelby Steele's a fascinating man. He was quite left wing. He was pretty much a black nationalist in the 60s and 70s. And he came around to a more conservative view by seeing the falsehood and the poverty of that vision of the human situation where you essentially blame one group of people for the problems of another group of people and you'd never give up. Mm. And he has a whole book called White Guilt, which is very well done, Mm -hmm. that the idea is that the problems of African-Americans are based on the oppression wrought against them by whites. And so the whites feel guilty and the blacks feel marginalized and victimized. And he says, that certainly has been true. We can't deny that. But he said, this is very disempowering to African-Americans. You're, you're dependent upon white people to save you? I mean, what kind of a view is that in America, where we have individual freedoms and liberties and we're trying to live true to those things? So I defer to Shelby Steele quite a bit in the book. I have tremendous amount of respect for him. He is a masterful writer. He is a real artist in how he writes about race. I think he's probably aesthetically the best writer on race in America. I think in terms of the scholarship and all the documentation, it would be Thomas Sowell. Those are my two favorites, both of whom just happen to be (laughs) African-American. So there are African-American conservatives out there. It used to be said that a neoconservative is a liberal who is mugged by reality. And I think that's true of a lot of conservatives like Shelby Steele. In fact, Thomas Sowell was a Marxist, Mm -hmm. even into the early part of his academic career. And he radically changed his mind when he really began to study the causes of poverty and the realities of racism and so on. Yeah, I read Shelby Steele's book, White Guilt, last year, the year before, and found that to be one of the most powerful uh, eye-opening books I've ever read. Mm -hmm. I learned so much through that book. (laughs) You've mentioned this already, that there is ideas behind chaotic events that we saw in 2020. In the aftermath of George Floyd's death, we saw riots across the country. We saw, as the title of your book is, Fire in the Streets. And you argue that what we saw didn't just spring up from out of nowhere. Rather, what we saw was the result of ideas that had been embedded into our culture for decades. So what are the ideas that were behind and driving the riots of 2020? Well, essentially, it's Marxism and cultural Marxism. So the idea is that the American system is not just imperfect, but terribly flawed based on racism. And so the Marxist vision is basically to tear down a corrupt system and replace it through a revolution. And that's what we saw, really, in 2020. The idea was to burn it down, to destroy it. There's nothing good left of America. So fundamental institutions have to be dismantled like the police, defund the police because they're incorrigibly oppressive and so on. Let's literally destroy police stations, state capitals, that kind of things. The state capital in Denver was damaged and they basically occupied that area for weeks and weeks in Mm -hmm. the summer of 2020. So I was in Willow, Alaska in 2020 and I wondered if I should come back to Denver. I was afraid maybe even come back and live in the suburbs and teach at Denver Seminary. So that's when I decided to write the book. Really, people kept asking me about what's behind this? What's the philosophy behind it? Because it didn't just pop out of nowhere. So if you look at the leaders of groups like Black Lives Matter, they will say that they are Marxists. They're trained Marxists. 
And moreover, a part of this is not just let's come against the American system, but let's free people from the oppression of having to be heteronormative. So the idea of critical race theory, which is really behind this, is we need to free people racially and sexually, and we need to destigmatize basically any sexual behavior. So critical race theory said it was a neo-Marxist view. We need to free people from economic oppression, from the profit motive and private property. We also need to free people from racial oppression and also sexual oppression. So the idea is that we need to expand the group of revolutionaries and teach people how oppressed they are so they will become discontent and then not try to reform the system from within, but destroy it and put in its place, what? Well, some kind of socialist utopia. It's never all that clear what it's going to be, but it is going to be top-down, statist, socialist control of society to bring about these outcomes of utopia, which will never occur. Help us understand that connection just a little bit more. Because classical Marxism was a focus on economic oppression. That's at the center of the worldview. But what we're seeing today now more so is there's certainly a push for socialist programs, but it goes far beyond that to race, as you said before, gender, sexuality. Help us understand that genealogy from classical Marxism to mm-hmm. critical race theory. Right. Well, there were a group of Marxists in the 20s in Frankfurt, Germany, called the Frankfurt School, people like Herbert Marcuse and Max Horkheimer, Eric Fromm, and others. And they realized that the vision of Marx and Engels had never really worked out the way they anticipated. They anticipated workers around the world to become more and more alienated and more discontent. So they expected world revolution from the bottom up, from the workers. And the revolution that happened in Russia was really not from the bottom up, from the peasants. And the same thing was the case later in China with Mao Zedong. But in the 20s and 30s, these thinkers were saying, well, America should have had its revolution already because it's a capitalist country. And they even went through the Great Depression and didn't have a major revolution where the proletariat rose up and overthrew the bourgeois and created the dictatorship of the proletariat, they must not be reading their marks, you know. (laughs) They're not doing what they're supposed to do. So they said, we have to refine the Marxist theory to encompass other forms of oppression, and we have to show people that they are more oppressed than they think they are. They're suffering from what they call false consciousness. So you think that if you have a family and a small home and a regular work schedule, and you're staying out of debt, that you're doing pretty well. But no, really, you're oppressed. So they tried to expand the categories of oppression. And people like Herbert Marcuse would say that we've been lulled into some kind of a state through technology where we are content with our lives, but still it's a deeply structurally, systemically unjust system. And so they tried to bring in sexual minorities and key into the concerns about how people of color were treated and so on. So expand the base of revolutionaries by saying that you are oppressed in all these different ways. And one way of dealing with this is what's called intersectionality. So the claim is that there are multiple categories of oppression. So there's color, there's gender, there's 
sexual identification, and so on. But my main concern with this is not that groups are unimportant. Your membership in a group is unimportant. It does. And there are stereotypes for people in groups. People are discriminated against. But with critical race theory, this becomes the fundamental category for analysis. So what matters about you is if you're white or black or Asian or Hispanic or whether you're gay or straight or whatever it is. That's what really matters. This is an extension of something called identity politics. Mm -hmm. It's basically identity politics ramped up beyond anything you can imagine previously. And the better way, the more biblical and American way of viewing it is that people are individuals before God. We're all made in the image and likeness of God. So we have equal dignity. There's one God. There's one human race. There are two genders that God created. And then we need to work for the common good, loving God and our neighbor within those categories of a worldview and not keep trying to find layer upon layer upon layer of oppression because you happen to be a person of color or a woman or LGBTQ. Now, those need to be taken seriously, no question. But the problem is when you have this neo-Marxist view where everything is understood in terms of group membership and oppressor-oppressed relationships, that becomes the default. It actually becomes the only mode of analysis. So, you know, I want to know how oppressed, let's say, a, a black lesbian tenured professor is in the American system. Well, you've got black, you've got lesbian, you know, you've, you've got a woman. So a little redundant there. But you've got three indices of oppression. But if you look at somebody in that situation, they're actually quite successful. So I don't think it's fair. Or let's talk about, you know, very poor white folks in Appalachia, second, third generation welfare, maybe addicted to drugs. And so because you have a white male, that person is part of the oppressor class against people of color and so on. I think it's far better to view people as individuals before God, make laws fair and just, give people equal opportunities, and then let's work in the churches and let's work in personal persuasion to advocate for love and working for the common good, but not try to sort everything out according to these woke categories from the top down. So critical race theory people are against the free market. They think the free market always leads to racism, which is absurd. And I deal with that in my book, Fire in the Streets. No system is going to just eliminate racism. Socialism won't. The free market won't. The issue is really in the human heart and whether your laws are fair for everyone, given who they are as people, as human beings made in God's image. So a lot of people are very attracted, I think, to some of what the critical race theory people have to say because they find certain inequities in society and they're discontent with what's happening and they are desperate for some kind of a solution. But as I try to show in the book, critical race theory doesn't give us the right categories of analysis and it doesn't give us the right vision for society. So there's a lot to work on, but I think the essential American values of ordered liberty under God, individual rights, these are far better categories to work with than anything like critical race theory has to offer. So some people might push back and say, well, we still look at American society and we can see all of these discrepancies and we can see some groups that just seem to be far behind others. Mm -hmm. And when we look at these groups, we can maybe point to 
injustices that they've experienced in the past and oppression they've experienced in the past and say, well, obviously it is due to a s- systemic racism and mm-hmm. systemic patterns of oppression that has resulted in these groups underperforming or not having being in the same place as the others. And so if what you're saying is that that is not the best mm-hmm. category of analysis, then yeah. what, what would be a better way to analyze and try to understand the discrepancies that do exist? Well, there are two issues. One is what has happened historically. And there have been terrible injustices with the possibility of gaining and keeping wealth, especially in the African-American community. But then the issue is, well, what do we do about it now? What is the best way forward given these discrepancies, many of them based on injustices? And socialism is not the best way to do this. I don't think reparations are a good way to deal with this. I think what makes sense is to give people equal opportunities uh, to eliminate any sort of laws that discriminate unfairly against anybody, whether they're red or yellow or black or male or female. Let's have equal protection, equal opportunity. But see, since I am a conservative, I don't think that socialist programs tend to help people. They tend to foster indolence. They tend to undermine responsibility. And I think you look at the effects of the war on poverty. Uh, Read a book like the book by, I'm thinking of, well, Thomas Sowell has written about the bad effects of the war on poverty. Charles Murray also, the book called Losing Ground. So people say, look at all the injustice, look at the discrepancies. Okay, let's now have some kind of socialist redistribution as the answer. I'd say, I grant these problems and I grant the difficulties, but let's look at how some state programs actually furthered these problems of dependency and poverty through the war on poverty, for example. So I'm not denying that this has happened, but the issue really is how do we address it now? And then why do we have discrepancies now? There are lots of reasons. Thomas Sowell has a whole book on that. I think it's called Discrepancies and Discrimination. So if you look at different people groups, they achieve differently in society for lots of different reasons. One of them is average age. So the average age of a Japanese-American, I think, is 51. And the average age of, I think, of an African-American is something like 34. Don't quote me on that. I have to quote myself. It's something like that. But the point is that if you're older, you will tend to have made more money than when you're younger. I have more money now than when I was 30, let's say. I'm 65 now. So when you look at a population group, you say, okay, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, white, But then you also have to ask about things like average age, what part of the country they live in. There are all kinds of factors Mm -hmm. that make discrepancies. Racism may be one of them. I don't think it's the leading factor today. It certainly was a leading factor a long time ago. But if you look at someone like Robert Woodson, who is a civil rights leader, he's in his 80s now. He's an African-American and he's a conservative. He says... Even if people don't like me because of my skin color, I don't have to fail. I can still achieve. And he points to the Jim Crow South, where a lot of blacks developed a parallel culture because they were not allowed. They were wrongly not allowed into white culture. But they developed a parallel culture of business and education and so on and did extremely well and had strong family values, strong family structure and so on, even when they were being discriminated against. Now, that's not an argument for discrimination, but it does tell you that personal initiative, 
an emphasis on the family and so on is very significant. I have a quote in my book from that great American conservative Barack Obama, where he says that the essential problem in the black community or one of the essential problems in the black community is a lack of fathers in the home. This is Barack Obama, what, about 2008, something like that? And I have a long quote from him. And he's right. Family structure, educational structure, educational opportunities, these are all very significant factors. And to simply say that if we have a discrepancy, it must be caused by racism is bad social science, bad history. And this is what you hear people like Abraham X. Kendi saying all the time. Mm. And so if all discrepancies are based on discrimination, then you need new discrimination to equalize things. He says that. You've had past discrimination. Now you need new discrimination to get the quotas where he wants them to be. Mm -hmm. And that is not a good idea. It just breeds resentment and it undermines meritocracy, all kinds of things. Yeah, perpetuating injustice in the name of justice. Two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, mm -hmm. so to my mind, we need equal opportunity and then let's hire and let's admit people to schools on the basis of merit. And then whoever you are, if you work hard and have the ability, you will be able to generally succeed. Mm -hmm. So all these artificial programs having different levels of admission, given skin color for universities, this is unfair. And this often doesn't work well for student achievement. Dinesh D'Souza wrote about this 30 years ago in his book, Illiberal Education. So you want more Hispanic Americans, African Americans. Well, you lower the level of achievement they have to have to get into the schools. And then when they get into the schools, they're not ready for the school. They would do better in another school. So the dropout rates are high. The grades are low. There might be a change of major from a difficult major to an easier major. And it doesn't make sense to artificially promote people on the basis of ethnicity or sex. I think that's where merit comes in. Mm -hmm. And there are these unintended bad consequences that conservatives will point out over and over again. Mm -hmm. So you've got that book many years ago, Illiberal Education. There's a newer book called Mismatch that is written about this. And I discuss this in the book. Hey guys, we're just going to take a quick break from this episode to hear from our sponsor, Defend. Defend is one of the best apologetics conferences in the country, hands down. It is coming to the campus of NOBTS and Level College on January 2nd through 6th, 2023. At Defend, you get to experience five full days of apologetics teaching from world-class apologists, such as Gary Habermas, Frank Turek, Paul Copan, Douglas Grootheis, and roughly 50 others. In addition to experiencing these engaging lectures, you will also receive free access to the recordings of all conference sessions, which comes out to roughly 150 hours. One of the things that makes Defend Conference unique is that their speakers don't just go off into a green room or a backstage area and stay separated from attendees, but instead they mingle among the attendees throughout the whole conference at meals and coffee breaks and so on. It gives you an opportunity to get to meet the speakers, ask them questions, and build relationships. At Defend, they also offer packages in addition to registration for meals and lodging if you're interested, and they also offer group discounts. I can't recommend Defend highly enough. It is one of my favorite conferences. I love it. Go to defendoffaith.net to learn more and register or click the link in the show notes below. I plan on being there this year, and I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back into this episode. Yeah. 
Speaking of affirmative action, that's one of the things that Shelby Steele writes about in White Guilt that really, really opened my eyes, something I never considered before. And he said, and once again, it's a program that was started out of White Guilt. In other words, white people, because of the shame they had over historical racism and slavery and segregation and so on, feeling as though they had to do things to atone for it and do things to give people of color a hand up. And so he points out, so they established affirmative action programs, but only in the academy. He said, there's no affirmative action in music or sports. <laughs> he said, so there's this assumption on the left that black people need a hand up in areas where it requires intelligence, but not music or sports. And he just exposes yeah. the deep contradiction at the heart of that worldview. Well, and also affirmative action has really morphed. I quote in the book, Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic senator back from the 60s, who said affirmative action is basically just being fair, making sure that the pool of applicants is representative of the community. We are not going to favor any one race in doing this. That was the original vision of affirmative action. It's amazing when I researched this. And now it's become the exact opposite of that is let's put race or gender ahead of everything else. Mm -hmm. And so this can cause suspicion. Well, why is that person there? Are they the best? Or is it because they're a particular skin color or because they're a female yeah. or because they're Tokenizing. trans? Yeah, something like that. And so I argue against affirmative action. I've been against affirmative action for a long time. And it was a black man who convinced me of it. It was Thomas Sowell. <laughs> I read some Thomas Sowell books back in the 80s, and he explained the way affirmative action worked. And it's really not to the overall benefit of the African-American or Hispanic-American or anybody, really. If you can work hard at a level playing field, you'll never get there perfectly, but I'm a conservative, so I don't expect solutions. I expect trade-offs. Thomas Sowell again. I dedicated my book to Thomas Sowell. So you work for a level playing field, equal opportunity, get rid of real discrimination, and then see how people perform. I think that makes a whole lot more sense than trying to fine-tune the system with all these rules, regulations, quotas, percentages, and we're just going to make this somehow work. And when you start lowering standards in things like the airline industry or medicine for the sake of diversity, supposedly, we're in big trouble. And this is happening. Mm -hmm. I don't talk about it in the book because this research I've read more recently. But this is even happening in medicine and the airline industry. So, well, we have to change our standards in order to be more diverse. Well, these are high-stakes situations with pilots and with doctors and nurses and so on. And as you just said with Shelby Steele, it's actually insulting, isn't it? Yeah, very. Yeah. Yeah. Why can't a black pilot achieve the yeah. same standards as a right. white pilot? Right. Yeah. We see these ideas working out in other areas of culture as well. I mean, we've been talking about areas of race, but we also see it happening in radical gender ideology. We see pushes happening across the country, even in elementary state-run schools, to teach LGBT issues. How is even the ideas of gender and of sexuality, how does that fit into this Marxist revolution we see? Right. Well... I have to commend this book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a brilliant book about how expressive individualism is really the guiding ideology of much of American life and in the West. And as the idea of the self is not tethered to any sacred order, there are no constraints on the self, there's no thus set the Lord available. 
So what matters is what we desire and especially our sexual desires. And there should be no constraint or restraint on sexual desires. And he talks about how, with critical theory, Marxism and Freudianism came together, largely through the work of Herbert Marcuse, in a book called Eros and Civilization. So Freud believed that we were essentially sexual beings from day one, but that certain sexual proclivities had to be restrained for the sake of civilization. In that sense, he was conservative. But... You have Marx wanting revolution, and it's really economically viewed, economically considered. But Marx and Engels were against the traditional family because they thought it perpetuated capitalism and was just an effect of capitalism. So you have this idea of overturning capitalism. And then Freud says we're essentially sexual beings, but we have to restrain some of that sexual expression for the sake of civilization. Marcuse and others come along and say... No, actually, because we are essentially sexual beings and there's no sacred order that restrains us, then liberation is not only overturning the domination of the owners against the workers, it's also overturning the sexual ethics of the Judeo-Christian worldview. So we need to be able to express our sexuality. That's intrinsic to liberation. So politics is everything, given Marx. And now everything in politics is sexualized, given Marx wedded to Freud and then reinterpreted by Marcuse. So it's all part of this idea that we have to emancipate people from authority. There's an old bumper sticker I used to see a lot in Oregon when I lived there called Question Authority. And I always questioned that bumper sticker. Anyway, but Question Authority is like all authorities, all power structures are wrong and unjust. So we have to overturn them, not just the owners have to redistribute their wealth, but those who say that heterosexual monogamy is God's order have to be refuted, and any aspect of that in society has to be torn down. So a key thing legally in the United States was the 2015 Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage. I predicted at that point, he didn't have to be a prophet to do this, that this would open the door to all manner of destigmatizing sexual perversion. And we're seeing that everywhere. In fact, now, one of the most troubling things I've seen, I wrote two articles about it for the stream a few months ago, is the normalization of pedophilia. It starts with language. So you can no longer say pedophilia or pedophile because that's a stigma. That's stigmatizing. That's sort of the sexual equivalent of the N-word. So we don't want to say pedophile or pedophilia. Now we say minor attracted person or map. And I saw several videos which said, well, this is just a normal uh, urge. People can't help it. So let's not stigmatize them by calling them people that suffer from pedophilia. They're not pedophiles. Now, when you combine the idea that human beings are sexual from day one, which comes from Freud and then comes through Alfred Kinsey and others, with the idea that there's no sacred order and there's no constraint on human sexuality, then basically anything goes. Because to say that there has to be an age of consent means it's you're privileging the age. And we've got to get rid of all privilege. You know, mm-hmm. All authority, all extant norms have to be basically destroyed for the sake of human emancipation, which is really slavery. So we're now seeing this just flood of deeply perverse, horrible sexual activity, in public schools, drag queen story hour, 
get family friendly drag queen shows. Yeah. How who could make this up? Mm. Family friendly drag queen shows. But the idea is kids are already sexual. Why not tell them everything right away and just let them do whatever they want with anyone? So you sexualize children. There's no sexual restraint. There's no morality about sexuality. So the idea of age of consent just goes out the window. And there have been groups for decades that have been trying to get rid of all age of consent laws because they view them as oppressive to those who love children. So it's dark and horrible and really demonic at this level. Yeah, very demonic and horrible. But it's all sold in the name of liberation, freedom, emancipation from oppression. One of the common strains that we see in these revolutions, whether they be the French, Russian, Chinese, is that enemy number one is the Christian church. Right. Why is it necessary for revolutionaries to take out? We might say there's two number one enemies, the church and the family. You already mentioned Mm -hmm. the family. And they're related. Right. Why is that necessary? Well, because the idea is that God is the ultimate tyrant. God is the ultimate authority figure. And God is the one who says no to certain things and demands obedience and sets up structures for human life. And all that has to be torn down. So these revolutionary movements claim to be the way of salvation on earth. It's a counterfeit salvation. It's regeneration through revolution, basically. So we can't have any other agent of regeneration around competing for allegiance. And as you mentioned, the Judeo-Christian perspective supports the traditional family, not just as one option among many, but in fact, marriage simply is heterosexual. And the pattern of marriage that God himself set up is heterosexual monogamy and faithfulness within them. But with the sexual revolution... Well, that's repressive because the most important thing about us is our sexual expression. It's our eroticism. And this is what Malcolm Muggeridge, what, 40, 50 years ago called erotomania. And that's exactly what we're seeing. You know, the eros untethered from moral authority or constraint or any kind of structure. And it produces a deep ugliness in society. So if you can't shut down the churches, or convince people to be atheists, then try to win them over and show them that Christianity actually is Mm pro-LGBTQ. And the liberal churches are literally flying the flag of the LGBTQ plus movement over and over again. And I'm so sad, even some people that I worked with at my institution, who I thought were solid, went out into ministry and are now LGBTQ affirming in their their ministries. Mm Mm-hmm. And you cannot read the Bible that way correctly. You simply can't. Yeah, one of the things that Francis Schaeffer wrote about in his small book, A Christian Manifesto, was that whenever we remove the God who is there and who grounds objective truth and morality, when we lose that, well, then inevitably, whenever people look for, well, then where's truth that I can base my life upon? Where is a system of values that I can know that give me direction in life? What do I look to to give me something meaningful in life? Inevitably, what will happen in a society is that technocrats will rise up who tell the people, here's what is true, here's what is right, and and Mm -hmm. so on. And I think that the reason why the church has to be enemy number one for all these revolutions is because the end goal is always a Leviathan state. 
that is determinative of all meaning right. and exactly. uh, also determinative of, of all categories. Mm-hmm. I think that's why there's such a big push by these leftist movements today to eliminate any type of category that even comes with a, an obligation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing and why they want to have, like you were saying, family-friendly drag queen shows because we want to tear down mm-hmm. the categories of gender, right. the categories of family, of community, because with these things come various obligations. So if we can remove right. those categories and their corresponding obligations, the only obligation you have left is to the state. Exactly. The state is an ersatz god. And so this ersatz false counterfeit god wants to define reality and enforce its autonomous version of morality. That's what it comes down to. So we've got to understand our Christian worldview. What does the Bible actually teach about God, humanity, sexuality, and society, and be activists, be godly citizens who are involved and concerned to be salt and light in our culture, because we're losing the last vestiges of the Judeo-Christian ethic in the United States in many ways. It's very serious. Schaefer was deeply concerned about this in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and it has gotten far worse, and very quickly gotten far worse than anything he has imagined. I mean, we have some victories or we have some achievements like the Dobbs decision reversing Roe v. Wade, but that only takes it to a different level of dealing with states that are pro-abortion and dealing with companies that will pay their employees to go to a state that's pro-abortion to get yeah. abortion. So the conflict continues. At least the Supreme Court has now made the right decision about this case, and thank God, and it was so long in coming. But there are a lot of other issues to face in terms of critical race theory, gender ideology, and Christians need to really think through what they believe and why and how it relates to our culture. Because this is no time to coast as a Christian. Things are too serious. We're talking about normalizing pedophilia. We're talking about telling little white kids that they're intrinsically oppressive to people of color. Or we're disempowering people of color, saying you can't do anything until the white oppressors free you. I saw a little video about that years or just a few days ago. And then many years ago, I remember that being depicted on an album I had. There was a a Miles Davis album and there was this guy in the cover that had a sign, a black guy that had a little button on his, either on his shirt or on his hat that said, free me. I thought I was 15 when I saw that. I thought, wait a minute, free you? Aren't you in a position where you need to work on that yourself? Are you (laughs) wait for the white people to free you? Mm. So I go back to Robert Woodson and, What about agency or Shelby Steele? What about agency, achievement, hard work, faith, prayer, family, church? Why do we have to ask the state to be the thing that frees us constantly? Now, some things need to change. Obviously, Jim Crow had to be buried, killed and buried. And you've got to try to make things as fair as possible and really empower people in poverty, whatever race they are. Try to encourage them and help them and pray for them. But this idea you've got one group that oppresses, another group that's oppressed. And unless the oppressors do almost all the work, the oppressor are just going to stay oppressed. Well, that's a recipe for underachievement. That's a recipe for failure, depression, and all the rest of it. You know, we're made in the image and likeness of God. The old children's song, you remember that? Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in his sight. Mm -hmm. Somebody told me, well, that's actually racist because you left out a few colors. (laughs) I mean every color, okay? They're all precious in his sight. And we all have potential 
because we're made in the image and likeness of God, but we're all sinners, so I need to come to Christ for forgiveness and new life. But then we all have the possibility of doing the common good, working for the common good. Mm. And that's never been more significant, I think, than today, given the mass insanity we're seeing in some of these issues and the violence and the threats of violence. I think one of the things that is at the foundation of the controversy is who gets to define what is the common good. Exactly. We talked a lot about critical theory and critical race theory. There are those who argue, some Christian leaders, that these theories are actually compatible with Christian belief, if perhaps even complementary. What do you think? Are they, is CRT or critical theory compatible with Christian theology, worldview? Not at all. So these people just need to read my book. And give, <laughs> give me a book report. I, in a way, I wrote the whole book about that. Nothing good comes out of Marxism. Marxism is a godless, materialistic worldview that doesn't get economics right, doesn't get politics right, doesn't get history right. And any time it's been attempted, it's brought about totalitarianism and mass slaughter. Now, we have to thank James Cone, the African-American liberation theologian, for this idea that Marxism is an analytical tool that we can use to discern and flush out oppression. No, we don't. It's a false worldview. As I said, it doesn't understand anything correctly. So it's just simply not helpful. We need the biblical categories of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, a biblical view of human nature, a biblical awareness that certain groups will oppress other groups. But Marxism is not the tool you use to discern that because it's materialistic, it's godless, it doesn't understand the intrinsic right we have to private property and profit. Private property and profit can be misused, but they're not intrinsically wrong. So I completely disagree with that. I don't think critical race theory or gender ideology has anything constructive to offer Christians or the church. That doesn't mean we close our eyes to problems. We don't study this out. We don't get busy and work for the common good. We do. Mm -hmm. But I read this material, and I'm looking for something that's really helpful. And they might point out the problems, but they're not going to help with the solutions. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. You can find some helpful things. There's a book that James Cone wrote many years ago called The Spirituals and the Blues, which was an assessment of African-American culture with those two forms of music. And he did some interesting work there. I appreciated it. But his theological underpinning was really quite flawed to that. So I can find some good in that book. I referred to that book. I haven't used it as a textbook at one point. But in terms of a constructive understanding of African-American identity and achievement advancement in American culture, his kind of liberation theology, Marxist worldview, is not what is needed. Although he did bring out some features of the spirituals and the blues that were worth seeing, worth recognizing. So I don't think there's a compatibility. I think you can learn things here and there from people who are committed to a critical race theory approach, but learning things here and there is not the same as finding some deep, meaningful, theoretical insight from a viewpoint based on a false philosophy of Marxism. So I don't see that. Yeah. As you said before, we need to do more than just critique, but we also need to offer constructive solutions or a constructive path forward. Mm -hmm. So what would be a, if we just start with government, because we talked about how the revolution inevitably leads to an all-powerful, idolatrous state. If we just start with government, what would be a better solution, a Christian solution 
in view of what government means and how it should operate? Well, I'd say make it more American, make it more consonant with our founding principles. And our documents are documents that support a limited state based on a view of human nature, that human nature is fragile and fallen. And so we should work against Leviathan, statism, and try to stay within the constitutional boundaries of what federal and state governments should be. That's essential and non-negotiable for whatever policy we're addressing at any given time. And realize that the civil government is not the go-to to solve every problem. That is the mentality of so many people. I remember years ago, Ronald Reagan said very famously, government is not the solution, government is the problem, and getting applause. It'd be pretty hard for any politician to say that now. But in many cases, that is exactly right. So we have to work for individuals, families, schools, organizations to work to the common good and not always expect the civil government to come in. Now, there's some things where the civil government is the agent that matters, like policing, military, some other areas. More negative, more like defending property rights, defending the country. Not If there's anything wrong, civil government should be the thing that tries to solve it. In some cases, that is right. In other cases, it's not. So we need a better sense of what is the domain of the state biblically. Look at Romans 13, 1 through 7, for example. And then what is done for the common good through individuals and organizations. But statism is a form of idolatry. It's political idolatry. I remember seeing an ad years ago from one of the, you can discern which party I'm referring to, but one of the political parties had the national convention and they had a video and the video showed people in different walks of life, like plumbers and people out in the field and all these things and said, what is the one thing that brings us all together as Americans? It's government. No. (laughs) It's government. Oh, I thought it might be made in the image of God or we all love our families or something. No, the one thing we all have in common is government. And they meant civil government. Mm -hmm. But biblically, the ultimate government is God's sovereign government over everything. And then we have self-government, how we obey the Lord or not individually, family government, church government, school government. So I like to use those terms to differentiate what kind of government and also the sphere of government. So the civil government is certainly appropriate for defending the homeland and for policing and various things and can extract taxes. Jesus told us that, Matthew 22 and so on. But it's not the right agency for everything. And I can't expect the civil government to give me a good life. And I certainly can't expect the civil government to give ultimate meaning, value, and purpose to my life. That is the work of God, and that's revealed in Scripture. Christians talk about the need for us to remain nonpartisan. And I think that nearly all Orthodox Christians, and even very conservative Christians, would affirm that. That we ultimately do not belong to any party, but we belong to the kingdom. So our allegiance transcends any one party, and so they're necessary for staying out of partisanship. The problem that I see, though, and I I agree with all those things, the problem that I see is that we are in a situation where we have only two parties to choose from, and one of them is advocating all of the very wicked things we've been talking about today. It's Uh, true. Not just just discrimination, 
for the sake of righting historical wrongs. But, you know, I think it's hard to find a Democratic politician who would condemn these drag queen shows for children or who would condemn any limits on abortion. Right. So since we only have two options to choose from, how do we remain people who ultimately do not have our allegiance to the Republican Party either? We are still ultimately loyal to Christ and his kingdom, mm-hmm. but still only having these two to choose from, right? How, how do we navigate this? This is something that just personally I've been thinking through and trying to figure yeah. out. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> this is a hard one. It really is. And I agree with what you said. I think with politics, you often have to vote for the lesser of two evils. And that's also known as the evil of two lessers. We wish we had better choices in these situations. Uh-huh. But there's so much more than just elections. There's political involvement with school boards and your library committee. There are all kinds of ways to be involved. What I decided to do is I was, when I first became a voting age, I was independent for a few years, and then I became a Republican. I was Republican for a long time, and then I became non-affiliated, but I find myself voting Republican all the time for exactly the reasons you said. So I want to make a distinction between the church and the state, absolutely, a distinction between the kingdom of God and America, but I want to vote and to be involved politically in ways that I think will further the American vision and the common good. And right now, it's voting for Republican candidates. But I remember I supported Romney when he ran for president, and a lot of evangelicals were really worried about that because Romney was a Mormon and is a Mormon. And I said, well, we're selecting the president, not the pastor-in-chief. And you've got got the commander-in-chief, not the pastor-in-chief. And it's the lesser of two evils, and I think he is the better of the two. And I wish we had a better alternative than we do. So politics is not the same as the church, but people in the church should be involved wisely with politics. I think we have to keep a biblical critique in mind at all times so we don't simply support a candidate or a party no matter what, no matter what they do. Our first affiliation, our ultimate allegiance is to God and his kingdom and to promote and defend the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to sacrifice any of my biblical convictions when I get involved in politics. But, for example, let's say that there's a law that would restrict late-term abortions. We had a proposal for that in Colorado a few years ago. Well, I am against all abortions except to save the life of the mother. That's my moral position, and I can defend it. But this law, although I didn't think it went far enough, would have done some good. It would have restricted a lot of abortions after a particular time period. So I supported that law, and I put that sign up in my front yard. And being in Colorado, the law went down like 59% to 41%. Very discouraging. So politics is the art of the possible, and we often face less than ideal options. And I think at this point, and I've seen this happen for many years now, the Democratic Party has just slid further and further and further into extremism. And some people are responding, like Tulsi Gabbard, who recently very publicly left the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And she gave a fine 25-minute speech as to why she did. And she traditionally has been pro-abortion. So I wrote her a letter. I sent it to her website, and I also sent it to the hard copy of her address on her website. And I'm hoping she will not just be more conservative on on certain matters of gender and so on, but she'll become more conservative on the life issue and 
Ultimately, I hope she'll become a Christian if she isn't. So I never want to leave that out. You know, I always want to keep evangelizing people, doing apologetics, but I also want to, I keep saying this phrase, work for the common good, or to use a biblical reference in Jeremiah 29, God says to the exile, seek the welfare of the city to which you're exiled, because when it prospers, you will prosper. And Peter tells us that on earth we are, in a sense, exiles, although Jesus says, be salt and light. So we should be exiles. Our fundamental orientation is to God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things on earth. But if you set your mind on the things above, your view of the things on earth will be a lot more clear, Mm. and you'll keep them in a better perspective. That was Colossians 3, 1 through 3 I was referring to. So, you know, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but until you do, I'm going to work as hard and as long and as smart as I can (laughs) to get out the word and to contribute to strengthen the things that remain, I should say, as an American yes. citizen. Yep. Strengthen the, the good things that remain and oppose evil. But not oppose evil with evil. Oppose evil with good. Oppose hate with love. That's our calling. Yeah, I think you said something that's really important for us to remember when it comes to this. And don't allow ourselves to fall into the, as I said before, the political illusion. And that national politics is all of life. Mm-hmm. There is far, far more good that we can do in advancement of the kingdom in our everyday local lives than we can do in an election every four years. Right. This is captured in, I was talking to you earlier about Oz Guinness's newest book, Zero Hour America. And in the book, he talks about Washington's vision of what freedom in America would look like. And he used a phrase that he took from scripture, which was living under your own vine and fig tree. Oz said that Washington used it in his letters or speeches 49 times. Hmm. The idea was that every person would have the liberty to live as they ought to in their own local community. And that issues and life was worked out locally. Right. And that we only went as high up in the system of government as necessary mm-hmm. to find solutions and to fix problems. So in other words, not giving into the political illusion that all of our problems are solved in right. Washington, D.C. or here in Louisiana, Baton Rouge but that they can be fixed in our homes, neighborhoods, churches, and city halls, like you said before. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think Oz Guinness is our greatest living Christian social critic. And I didn't even know he had a new book out until you told me this morning over breakfast. <laughs> well, he he writes them so fast. He it's writes them very up. quickly now. Yeah. But that's right. Localism, anti-statism, anti-Leviathan. And people get addicted to Leviathan. They get addicted to statism, especially when they get free stuff. Mm. And we have to be better than that. We have to value faith in God, allegiance to the gospel, self-government, denying the flesh, taking up our cross, following Christ, loving our neighbor, giving love in response to hate. And that can be done in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, whatever civil government is. I mean, even if you're in prison, you can still please God, trust God, and work for as much good as you possibly can. But Making the state into a god is a horrible religious and political mistake. It's an illusion. It's a false god. It's an idol. And Americans have fallen into that in so many ways. And the way to deal with that is to cut the state down to size. I like what Dennis Prager says. He says, the bigger the state, the smaller the citizen. It's a very good statement because we need to regain and rediscover what citizenship is, a godly view of citizenship, of Caring for your own folks, your neighborhood, your town, and also the larger nation. 
and loving your country, having a, a what I call a qualified patriotism under God, one nation under God, as we say in the pledge. And meaning under God doesn't mean God endorses and accepts everything we do as Americans. Under God should be said in the fear of God, because he is the judge of the nations. Yeah. And he will hold every nation and every individual accountable. Yeah. Well, there is... We could keep going all day. There is a lot. I could maybe even choke again, and that would make it interesting. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much to talk about, and you and I are both talkers, so we could go on all day. Yeah. But we'll wrap it up here. For anyone who wants more in the stuff that we talked about, pick up Doug's book called Fire in the Streets. You guys who are here, you can yeah hold it up for him. For you guys who are here, you can purchase a copy. If you're watching or listening to this on Filter or Truth Tribe, you can find a link to it in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, let me also encourage you, just a reminder to visit our sponsors, Christian Lewis Attorney of Law and Defend Conference. We are so thankful for them to uh, help us put on this event, this podcast episode today. Doug, I just want to thank you so much for not just your work in this mm-hmm. book and your time with us on this episode, but for all the work you're doing in your ministry. So thank you're you welcome. for joining us thank on you. this episode of Filter and Truth Tribe. Thank you. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. We hope to better equip you to be salt and light for your community. Uh, We hope that we can help you to go out and be a reflection of Jesus Christ to those around you, uh, to your friends and your family, and especially to those that do not know Christ. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.